0: All right, so last week we, uh, we were introduced to the Holy Spirit and we were introduced to the church. The church was introduced to itself, actually. They were, uh, the fledgling infant church w- was born and the Holy Spirit came and it came in power. And uh, one thing that's super important about the Holy Spirit is realizing that it's not just a power. The Holy Spirit is a person that we can talk to and lives with us uh, every day. And another thing that we'll talk about a couple times today is the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit today as it was 2,000 years ago. A lot of times uh, we, in the 21st century, seem to forget that. We forget that the same Holy Spirit that was doing miracles, helping people speak in tongues, um, doing all sorts of the miraculous We forget that that's the same Holy Spirit that resides in us if we have uh, Christ in our heart. Well, today, uh, we're going to go through Acts 3-5, through and we're going to see the next step of the Holy Spirit, the next progression of the church, and we're going to see where where the church is going to go from here. And today, really, I want to take an honest look at our hearts and answer this one question. Do I trust God? I'm sure if you and I were to sit down and have a conversation and I asked you point blank or you asked me point blank, do you trust God? I would say yes. Of course. He's the sovereign God of the universe. Uh, of course I trust him. He made everything. You know, I'm here. I have salvation. Why wouldn't I trust him? But I want to look deeper than, than just the mental ascent here. I want to I look deeper. Like, Do I actually trust God? If you, were to, if you were to talk to him, would he say, yes, Jonathan, you trust God. You trust me every day and all day. So we're going to look at the, the Christian purpose of trust. So turn with me to Acts 3, if you've got your Bibles. Now, uh, if you're new to the series or uh, you've missed Ken saying it the last couple weeks, we're going to be reading a lot of the scripture, but we're not going to read all of it. Some sections we're going to clump together, some sections we're going to peel apart. So um, it's a good incentive to keep up with the reading and the, and the homework throughout the week. But um, we want to hit wave tops. otherwise we'd be teaching Acts until 2025. So uh, right here in Acts chapter 3 verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So this man, if you've read this before, this is a fairly familiar story. For over 40 years, since birth, this man's never been able to walk. This man has been carried everywhere that he goes, This man has spent his entire life trusting others. He's the epitome of trust. He, when he wakes up in the morning, he trusts that somebody is going to pick him up and carry him, probably multiple people. And then on top of that, to get his food ready. He's trusting other people to provide money for him to to live, because back then, Just Handicapped people couldn't walk or couldn't walk, couldn't work. So they had to beg. That was their their means of uh, provision. So they had to trust others, and then they had to trust people to get home. This man spent his whole life having to trust others. Here's our theme. Trusting God daily leads to meeting God at work. We're going to really unpack this. What does that mean to trust God daily? What does that mean to meet God at work. Well, first off, trust is one of those words that we have to really define. Otherwise, it becomes something like just have faith, just hope. You know, some of those words that are kind of Christian words but have secular meanings. Like, what, what does trust mean? You know, there are a lot of times if you sit down and think and somebody asks you point blank, hey, what does it mean to trust God? And you have to really sit there and think like, do, do I have a definition for this? Well, the definition, according to dictionary.com, trust is the reliance on the integrity, strength, ability, and surety of a person or thing. Confidence in that person or thing. What we're going to see today is a lot of times we miss this, the real definition of trust. But when we trust in God, when I'm talking about trusting in God, we're talking about relying on the sure thing that God is telling us the truth. He is full of integrity. His word is true. What he says in it is true. The promises that he makes are sure to happen. And he has the strength and ability to make sure that they happen. Trusting in God means having confidence that he is who he says he is. So we're going to look at two sets of characters today and kind of put them up against each other to see um, just the different ways that they display, not just trusting God, but other, uh, other facets of that. So we have Peter and John and Ananias and Sapphira. Before we dive into these things, or into these two groups of people, I want you to see one thing, that any one of you, including me, any one of us could be Peter and John today, or Ananias and Sapphira. And we're going to have, a, have them set, apart a, set against each other as good and bad but in their example. But I want you to see that some days you're the good example, some days you're the bad. And the goal is to end up being on the good side more than the bad. So we're going to see the difference in whom they love, whom they bring glory to, whom they fear, and whom they trust. When you trust God, you do his will. We'll unpack this also some more as we go through this morning. But what is his will? Well, his will is something that we, a lot of times in in our culture misuse. A lot of times we want to know God's will for my life, God's will for this church, then God's will for my business. A lot of times that's not what, what God is even really referring to when he's talking about his will. His will, most of the time, is talking about being obedient to his word. It's about doing what he's told you to do in the first place for today. It's God's will for us to do good. It's God's will for us to be faithful. But there are a couple ways we're going to be able to make sure that we're doing God's will. First thing is looking for where God's at work. There are two aspects of looking for where God's at work. There's the Blackaby way. If you've ever done experiencing God, I I did that one time when I was in college and it changed my life. It changed my spiritual walk because it helped open my eyes to the specific ways that God is doing uh, spiritual, supernatural things. And that's one way. Whenever people are having gospel conversations or people are just having any sorts of spiritual conversations your kids ask you, Dad, what does it mean? You know, did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale? Like, those are like the the things that are overt, that we're not typically looking for, that we need to have our eyes open uh, for. But it also means that God is at work around you all the time, and it doesn't necessarily have to have a spiritual conversation going with it. And what I mean by that is that. From the time you wake up in the morning until the time you go to bed at night, God is at work around you, even while you're sleeping. So it's being open, having your eyes open to what God is doing around you. And to help with that, we'll have our second thing, which is not separating the sacred from the secular. As men, we compartmentalize. We've got our sports bucket, we've got our church bucket, we've got our work bucket. And none of them are supposed to overlap, right? Because we're men. That's not how it works. But in the Christian life, as soon as you accept Christ, as soon as you repent and turn to Jesus and decide to follow him, your buckets all all overlap. There is no compartmentalization. Your Christianity runs. Maybe you keep your sports bucket and your work bucket separate, but your Christian bucket overflows into both of them. There is no separating the sacred from the secular. From, whether, from when you're brushing your teeth, to eating lunch, to making a deal in your business. Who you are as a Christian defines how you do everything. So we should have our eyes open to that. What is God doing around us? Verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at them, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So he had asked to receive alms. Like I said before, this was the only way that this guy survived was by other people giving him money and other people taking care of him. And what you see, Peter, right here, and John. From the time they woke up that morning, they had no idea what was going to happen this day. All right, no idea. They woke up, And they said, God, what are you going to do? And they didn't know. But at this time, at this point in time, when the beggar asks for some money, they see opportunity. Have you ever had that time, if you're as a Christian where you feel like, you feel that tug of the Holy Spirit. You're like, I need to have this conversation with somebody or I need to bring up Christ, or I need to ask this guy about his worldview, or what he thinks about that, or I need to go help that person. If you've ever had that, I know I have, and and not done it, you always think about it afterwards. I've been that guy that just keeps driving uh, instead of pulling over to, to help somebody whose car broke down. I've been that guy that in the midst of people talking about ridiculous spiritual things that didn't speak up. That, that's you, that's me. But Peter right here, with, a, with an air of expectancy, he looks at this guy. So alms, alms were the daily uh, giving of offerings to the poor that had a religious uh, undertone to it. So if you gave money to the poor for a religious reason, that got you like street credit with God, all right? So it's, man, I'm building up my my empire a little bit because I, I threw that guy a bone. But Peter says, look at us. See, Peter is ready for an opportunity. He says... Look at us. This mindset of expectation is gonna be what drives our daily life. If we have a mindset of expectation that God is working around us always and He's always doing something, and we're ready to be a part of it, we've fully submitted ourselves to God for for this day and for tomorrow, this mindset of expectation is gonna help us. See, he trusted that God was at work. That's that theme again. He trusted that God has an overarching plan that he's working out, and he wants to use those that follow him to do it. So his trust led to a chance to share the gospel. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise up and walk. He said, dude, I'm a preacher. I don't have all all that silver and gold stuff you're asking for. But what I do have is so much more valuable. I have something that's going to last you a long time. Have you ever stopped on this part of the passage? Rise up and walk. There's just a regular day. Peter's just going to the temple. Peter and John are just going to the temple to worship at the regular appointed time. Three o'clock in the afternoon, that's when Jews go to the temple to worship. At this point of the day, he's been going for a few hours. Nothing, maybe significance happened. And he finds himself in this circumstance. He says, rise up and walk. How many in this room have told somebody to rise up and walk that's never walked before? <laughs> I'm putting my hand down, because it's not me. So... That took faith. Remember what I said, though. Peter and John, they're, they're just you and me. They're the same people that have the... They've got the same Holy Spirit as you and I have. But they said, get up and walk. That took a lot of guts. That took a lot of trust that God was actually going to follow through on what he had prompted him for. And Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately... His feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Heck yeah, he was praising God. <laughs> He'd never walked before. He's in his 40s. He was jumping and singing, giving praise to God. He was excited. And one thing I don't want you to overlook I bet Peter was pretty excited too. You know, it doesn't always talk about the apostles or Jesus, like, getting fired up. But put yourself in that situation. You're you, and the Holy Spirit's just used you in a mighty and powerful way. Regardless of what the outcome is, seeing the outcome has got to be pretty exciting. Can you imagine what was going on in Peter and John's mind right then? They were right there alongside the, the man praising God. See, Peter and John had the calling to follow Christ, which included loving people and giving all the glory to God. See, I can take these two names out, Peter and John, and I can put your name in there. If you belong to Christ, this is your calling. It's not just Peter and John's calling. This is your calling. Your calling is to follow Christ, which includes loving people, and giving all glory to God. What are the two greatest commandments that Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's, a, that's the summary of the Christian life. The whole ten commandments, like Jesus said, is wrapped up in that. That is your calling as a Christian. Peter and John knew this calling and they took it seriously. And all the people saw this man walking and praising God. They knew this guy. They'd seen him for 40 years begging. They knew his parents. They knew his cousins. They knew his siblings. And they saw this and they started praising God. They recognized him. Of course they recognized him. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Wow. Of course they were filled with wonder and amazement. So with that, Peter sees opportunity number two. He already had the first opportunity. He felt that prick of the Holy Spirit saying, I've got some work for you. And he took advantage of it. Second opportunity, he sees everybody celebrating and praising God for this wonderful act. And Peter says this, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk skip down to verse 16. And to this name, by faith in his name, Jesus, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. See, when God does something, when God's at work, when we see God moving, when we're a part of God's will, that's an opportunity. Peter sees this opportunity as a time to preach. All right, everybody's praising God. We have to let everybody here know because everyone around them pretty much is just your everyday Jew. I have to let all these people know where this power came from. Like I said, the part of the calling is loving people and giving glory to God. Peter wasn't about to take any credit for this. He and John, they'd been on the wrong side of this many times before, asking for uh, special seating, you know, asking for special privilege. They'd been on the wrong side of this before and they weren't about to take any credit. Getting ahead of myself. Before we move on, Peter's just preached this amazing sermon. People are starting to believe, people are starting to see what God is really doing around them. And this is the time when you know, my, my wife likes Lifetime movies. Do, you, do, y'all, do y'all's wives like Lifetime movies? You don't have to admit if you like them, but if your wife likes them, you know what I'm about to say. So this is the part of the story when everything is great, everything's wonderful, everything is awesome, the snow's falling, the two that just met each other fall in love and are about to get married tomorrow. Like, this is that part of the story when you're thinking, man, the end, right? The end. The guy got healed. Everybody's full of wonder and amazement. This is a fantastic time. But this isn't a lifetime movie. This is reality. Much to my wife's chagrin. This is, this is the real life. Because there's some people in chapter 4, we move on, that don't like this message. As we see here... They were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, because they were proclaiming or they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So the the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the people, they're seeing some encroachment on their territory. And they're getting kind of annoyed. I think it's funny that the Bible says that. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And this is the point where we stop here, and if you're you and me, you're thinking, all right, that dude got healed. It was pretty interesting. I was pretty psyched out for a second. But then those guys got arrested that did that. I'm out. You know, this is the time when your average everyday folks, your expectations are that It's time to to scatter. It's time to move. You know, that's enough. Nothing to see here. I'm out. But then we go to verse 4 and we see, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. Guys, God is a very counterintuitive God. He does not work in the way that we think that things should work. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And he proves it every time. When we, just when we think that everybody would be scattering and that this is over, over 5,000 men believe. Now that, before you start to, you know, minimalize that number, I want you to, to see that the population of Jerusalem was only between 25,000 and 85,000, depending on your estimate. So if just 5,000 men were believing at this time, just think about their families, You know, all the kids, all their spouses, all these things. And that number is a significant percentage. If the city of Fort Worth had that kind of percentage, it would blow our minds. But God's ways aren't our ways. And we see 5,000 men. Trouble can come when you do God's will. Peter and John are arrested in chapter four. And in chapter five, we see them uh, arrested again with the other 10 apostles. And chapter four and five are very similar. So I'm gonna kind of lump them together for the sake of their rest and the follow-on. Life's not always gonna go in what our mind says is smoothly when we're in God's will. God's working things out in a way to him is like this or but what we're seeing is this we can only see what's going on in our lives we can't see what's going on in our neighbor's life we definitely can't see what's going on in two of our neighbors lives and you throw in a third person our minds are blown and we we've, we've got no productivity left we we can't fathom god working out his plan throughout the whole world simultaneously. But trouble can come when you do God's will. What kind of trouble did he get in? He was, he was in trouble for preaching. Now, Peter and John were just lay people. They had quit their schooling at the mandatory time of uh, schooling for, for Jewish boys, and then they went off and pursued their career. They were fishermen. They were just regular guys. They had no special training but they were preaching in the temple. That's a significant cultural no-no, especially when all the leaders are around going, who the heck are these guys, you know, getting up in our space, having thousands of followers, you know, who are these guys? They're just a bunch of local uh, yokels. But he was preaching. And what we're going to see here, Peter and John, the way they see the arrest is not the way that you and I would see their arrest. If we're in a foreign country, we get arrested for proselytizing. What are we thinking? We're thinking, maybe I shouldn't have been doing this. What are Peter and John thinking? Opportunity. Their mindset of, uh, of expectation and their trust in God's overarching plan and God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness, their trust that his plan was going to happen, the surety of his plan led to two more opportunities, chapter 4 and chapter 5, to preach to the Sanhedrin. So I don't want that to escape, escape this, uh, the significance of that to escape you. The Sanhedrin was the same group of people that just got Jesus killed a few months prior. Peter and John knew the danger that they were in when they got arrested. So preaching in the temple, that was, that was probably scary enough. Going to the Sanhedrin and preaching was probably terrifying. So sometimes when we're in God's will, it's not always going to be smooth. Like, I felt the power of the Holy Spirit. I was confident. And I just told those people how to get saved. That's not always how it works. Sometimes it's absolutely terrifying. You know, our, our, our bodies shake and our hearts pounding. But God's called us to do something. And he's put the opportunity. Peter and John see the opportunity. Well, why were they so mad? Why did they arrest him besides the, the huge crowd and the following? Well, they were preaching a couple things. In verse 12, you see Peter very pointedly points at the, at the Sanhedrin and he says, Jesus is the only way of salvation based on his crucifixion, which you perpetrated. It was you guys that crucified Jesus the Messiah, the only Savior of the world. And because he rose from the dead, which the Sadducees didn't believe, they didn't believe in any sort of resurrection. He is the only way. So the Sanhedrin's an uproar. Both times, they're in chapter four and chapter five, they're, a, they're an uproar. They're ready to kill him right there on the spot without any trial, without anything else. They're ready to do him in. Towards the end of Peter's first sermon to the Sanhedrin, they've, they've conferred a little bit, and they come back out. They see the man who was heal, healed standing beside them. And this is pretty funny. They had nothing to say in opposition. They, they'd been there. They knew this guy, too. He wasn't a foreigner. He was the same guy that was on the same stoop at the same step, Every day, their whole lives. Some of these guys don't remember a day they didn't see this guy. And they see him standing there. I can't say anything. But we're going to ignore that. We're going to ignore that. We're just going to pretend like that didn't happen, and we're going to move on. And they talk, and they say... They called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What had the name of Jesus already done? The name of Jesus had already healed a man that had never walked before. The name of Jesus had made people rise from the dead. Don't speak in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered him. Here's some wise words. whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. He gives the same answer in chapter five. How do you answer that if you're in the Sanhedrin? Listen to us. You better listen to us and not to God. No, can't say that. Better listen to God, not to us. No, I can't say that. You just cut it out, all right? You know, this is, they've got nothing. They, they have literally nothing to say. For we cannot, verse 20, but speak of what we had seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. See, they were scared of the people. They knew if we did something right now, they wouldn't be able to control it. So in chapter 4, they let him go without a beating. In chapter 5, they just flog him a little bit. You know, not a big deal. Just get beat up for, for preaching. Not a big deal. That's probably going to happen to us at work today. Because they could not but speak. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah wants to not speak. The prophet, he, he's like, God, I'm not doing it anymore. You're, causing a lot, you're allowing a lot of trouble in my life. I don't like it. I'm tired of getting beat up. I'm not doing this anymore. But God's word was so inside of him. He said it welled up inside of him, and he couldn't help it. Peter and John are in the same boat. They couldn't help it. They'd seen the, the holes in his hands. They'd seen the hole in his side, and his feet. And they couldn't help but speak. The resurrected God was alive because they trusted God's plan. They knew that overarching plan, that God was going to take care of it no matter what. If they died that day, it was part of God's plan. If they lived that day, it was part of God's plan. Guys, I want want you to see that in your own life. Because you woke up today, God's got you still part of his plan. The day that you don't wake up, that's the day that God's done. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, some people, have, some of us have lived super faithful lives, and it's that time. Some of us still have some work to do. This guy's number one. Y'all can all get behind me. Peter and John, they feared God more than they feared men. Remember that chart? Whom did they fear? They feared God. They knew that God was way more powerful, way more Smart, God was the sovereign, God knew God knew what was going on, God had the plan, and they trusted it. They feared God way more than they feared men remember remember Peter Jesus had said he was going to deny him he was like, no, that won 't happen, and then he did it. Peter spent some time fearing fearing man more than he uh, feared God. But guess what? God restored him. Jesus forgave him and restored him back to position. And Peter learned his lesson. He wasn't about to fear man more than he feared God. And they loved their fellow Jews more than safety, and they risked danger by speaking the truth. See, guys, the truth is on the line every day when we go about our day. There's always a secular worldview. There's always something talking to us outside of us, whether it's a TV show or what our kids have heard at school or whatever's on the news. Somebody's pushing an agenda that is not God's. And they're pushing those thoughts. They're pushing those feelings on us. But what is true? What is right? What is holy? What is, what is useful? That's what's said in this book right here. Our Bibles are our source of truth. And that's what God's given us. And I don't want you to overlook whom they loved. Peter and John loved their fellow Jews. Even though they were getting in trouble, even though, you know, things weren't always going their way, even though they had seen Jesus' crucifixion, they didn't stop. They knew that their ministry was to the Jews. Their people they love them. They love the Sanhedrin so much that they risked their lives to preach to them twice in two chapters. Two days. They preach. They loved their fellow Jews. They saw that if the Sanhedrin, just in Peter's mind, I know Peter was probably thinking, man, if the members of the Sanhedrin believe, what is that going to do For my people, what is that going to mean for Jesus coming back again? Maybe if the Sanhedrin believes, they'll spread it to all the people because that's the way it would work. The Sanhedrin wasn't in charge of all Jews everywhere on the planet. If they believed, what would happen? That was that was probably in Peter's mind. So they loved them enough to tell them the truth. They weren't about to just sit there and let them believe their lies and remain condemned for them. Look, look at this list right here. We have to look and see where we fit on this. On a day-to-day basis, am I trusting the Lord's plan? Do I fear God more than I fear men? Do I love the people around me more than my safety or my comfort? Is the truth on the line and am I I a proponent of it? See, trouble due to obedience is still in God's will. Obedience being the, the operative word here. I want to read this from 1 Peter 2. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. That's kind of a given. But if you suffer for doing good and endure patiently, God is pleased with you. Men, there is hope that even if we fail from time to time, that God's still there. Through repentance and through fellowship with him, we can get back in, in God's will. We can do God's will. We can be participants with God in his mighty and awesome work that is around us. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, he is our, your example, and you must follow in his steps. So the presence of trouble doesn't indicate an absence of God. Sometimes trouble is what puts you right in God's will. Sometimes when something is going wrong, that's our indication to correct course and get back on what he's expecting of us. Or it's a sign that you're already in God's will. See, Peter was already in God's will. Peter and John, they were already there. They were already doing what they've been called to do by loving people and sharing the gospel with them, making sure that God was honored and God was glorified by what they were doing. And the enemy doesn't like that. The enemy hates it when the gospel is being shared. He hates the gospel. See, the arrests and the Sanhedrin trials resulted in an increase in the faith and the growth of the church in Jerusalem. Again, this is a, a counterintuitive thing. The arrests and the trials and the beatings, like, the church for all human purposes, should have died off like that. It should have died off when people didn't believe in the resurrection. It should have died off when the beatings started happening. It should have died off when people started getting arrested. But it didn't. Because our God is bigger and our God is stronger and our God's ways are not our ways. Peter and John were living expectantly, trusting in God's plan. So they get released in chapter 4, and the church starts getting together, and they're praying together. And towards the end of the prayer, it says, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I want to highlight this word, boldness. When we face trouble, when we face trials, what are we normally, what's our normal first reaction? Our first reaction is, Lord, deliver me from this. Lord, make it stop. Get me out of this. Heal this. Figure this out for me, please, and let me get out of this pain. Let me get out of this suffering. Let me get out of this medical condition. Get me out of this, please, now. But what did the church pray for? They prayed for boldness, not deliverance. That boldness, the word for boldness in the Greek is a bold confidence. It's knowing without a doubt that what you're saying is absolutely true and you can't help but speak it. They prayed for signs and wonders, not for their safety. This should change the way that we pray on an everyday basis. From the time we wake up in the morning till the time we go to bed at night, this should change the way we pray for our missionaries. This is the way we should, we should change the way we pray for the men around our tables, for our Sunday school class, for our pastors, for our brothers and sisters. This should absolutely change the way we pray. Because one thing God's gonna grant when you pray for it is boldness to preach his word. And they preached the word of God with boldness, says verse 31. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So, what's happening here? Again, Nobody scattered. They prayed for boldness. And they realized that, hey, we kind of got to take care of each other. There are some, some of us here that are barely making ends meet, and we're definitely not making ends meet now that our bosses see that we're Jesus freaks. You know, we're, we're following Jesus now, and I just got fired. Or, you know, my family has ostracized me. They've, they've stepped away from me, said I'm not welcome anymore. So the church starts taking care of each other. Like, we got to survive. We can't let our brothers and sisters starve while you know, while we're eating. So we have this man, Joseph, who's also called by Apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. That's a cool nickname. You know, we can only hope that somebody would uh, give us that nickname. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We're going to keep going. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge, and he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. When you see a but or a therefore in scripture, that means that the preceding thing, the preceding passage is connected. There's a direct relationship, there's a reason why I, Paul mentions Barnabas. He didn't have to. He could have just been like, everybody was sharing everything and it was awesome. Even people sold lands and property and gave everything generously. And he could have left it at that. But he gives a contrast here. First he talks about Barnabas. And then he has Ananias and Sapphira. The Greek word for kept back is nosfidzo, which my wife thought was a fun word to say. It means to embezzle. It means to be... It means to skim off the top. It's, it's, the, it's treating the church like it's an organized crime organization. It's saying, two for you, one for me. Two for you, one for me. Everybody thinks that two is all that we got. All right? This keeping back wasn't just, I, I'm going to hold on to a little bit. You guys, you know, this is what I can afford. You know, you take that. I didn't quite get as much as I wanted so for it, so y'all, y'all take this part. No, this is deceit. This is intentional deception of their brothers and sisters in Christ. What we'll see with Ananias and Sapphira is that if you trust yourself, you'll pay a high price. It's evident that they were only in this for themselves. These were your average churchgoers. I think that they were probably legitimately saved, but... It doesn't speak to it. But they were counted as the brothers and sisters. So they had at least professed. They were your average churchgoer that shows up, thinks, man, this place is nice. They got some really comfortable chairs. The people are nice. They've got really, really hot coffee and deliciously glazed donuts. Maybe I can get my business card out there a little bit. You know, this is a great place to make connections. People probably aren't going to, you know, give me a bad deal around here. And that Jesus guy is pretty cool too. They're in it for themselves. But Peter says, recognizing this through the Holy Spirit, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? you have not lied to man, but to God. See the heart, that's where the matter resides. This is about their heart. They lied to God because nobody knew if that was the right amount. Peter got prompted that it was. But God knew. Ananias and Sapphira had decidedly and overtly underestimated the power of the Holy Spirit and the nature of God. They forgot that little thing that God knows everything, that God is everywhere, and God is all-powerful. And they end up dead because of it. Ananias, and then three hours later, Sapphira. But what's Luke's point? What was their sin? Was it lying? The people that sin all the time, I've sinned, why didn't I drop dead? Some of us have probably already lied this morning. Some of us, you know, the day's still young. <laughs> Why don't people fall over dead for lying? What was their sin? Their sin was their misplaced trust. They underestimated God. They love themselves more than the church. And what I mean by that is that's like me in front of you guys saying, guys, I'm giving everything, and just lying to you. How would that make you feel if I'm standing up here just lying to you about something so sensitive as generosity? That doesn't respect you at all for anything. They didn't respect their leaders, and they didn't respect their brothers and sisters that were in need. They loved themselves more than the church. They pursued their own glory. This is right after Barnabas Did they see the accolades he was getting? Absolutely. And they were like, man, we need to figure out how to get up in the high society of this church thing. They were looking for their own glory. And they feared men. They wanted to know that their people thought that they were awesome. Not that their God was awesome, but that they were awesome. How often does that happen in our own lives? How often do we want people to think that we're awesome because of our spirituality, because of our Christianity, or because of our profession? And they trusted in themselves. We don't know why they kept the money, but we know that they did. We knew that they thought that they needed that for their provision. They didn't trust that God was the provider. See, we can relate to all these things. Just like in the, in the list with Peter and John doing it right, this is where we're doing it wrong. Every single one of us is this guy. Every single one of us has the potential to be the other guy every day. Even if yesterday you were this guy, you can be the other guy today. See, I, I'm this guy. I fear men. I care about what you think. I care about what other people think. Just as an example, my family has decided and feel convicted that when we give our tithes and offerings, it's the first weekend of every month, just so that we give our first fruits. That's the way we feel convicted. And I'm not saying that that's the way you have to do it. That's just the way our, our uh, family feels convicted to, to do that. So that means three and some months, four other Sundays, that offering plate comes by. And the guy with the pastor name tag on Just lets it go. Ever since I was little, anytime I didn't put anything in the offering plate, I felt guilty. Like, what are people thinking? You know, man, that guy doesn't ever give anything to the church, you know? Because I care what people think. A lot of times more than I care what God thinks. Does God know my heart? Does God know where my money is? Does God know if I've given or not? Absolutely. So I should care less if you think I've given because God knows my heart. Does that ever happened to you? It happens to me three Sundays out of the month. I have to remember that God, God, uh, God knows my heart. God knows what I've done. God knows me. So here's our, here's our completed chart. Let's focus on the top. Peter and John trusted in God. Ananias and Sapphira trusted themselves. Men, We're gonna go back and forth between the two sides of this chart throughout our lives. Sanctification means being on the left. Increasingly more and more, we're on the left side, all right? God wants us to be more like Jesus. The more we're like Jesus, the more we're on the left side. The more we trust that God's plan is good, that his end goal is to be glorified, and that our purpose on earth is to love others by sharing the gospel and teaching others to fear the Lord. Men, don't be down on yourself when you find yourself yourself on the right side. Just know where you need to turn. Your perspective needs to change. It's waking up in the morning living expectantly and trusting that God is at work. God is going to move even if you can't see it, trusting that God is working around you. So here's your table questions for today. Go back and look at the chart, the Ananias and Sapphira side. Which of those four do you, uh, do you struggle with the most and why? Guys, I don't, I don't want you to just, you know, be like, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a terrible Christian and this is why. You know, but like, what, what's the motivation? What's, what's the heart behind it? And Peter and John displayed a mindset that expected God to work in them and through, you, through them. Do you? How would it change your life if you did? Guys, I want you to discuss around the table how you can realistically, very practically, live life expectantly today. Tomorrow. The next day. Guys, at this point in time, like, this is a day-to-day thing. This isn't a five-year plan. This isn't a 10-year plan. Those are good things. Those are important things for seeing the end goal, having the end goal in mind. But being God's will is a daily activity. So practically, how does this play out? And why do you think we tend to view all difficulties and trials as signs that we're outside of God's will? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. God, I pray that you would bless our time around the tables, that it would be honoring and pleasing to you, and that you would change our lives. God, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for this time together in your name. Amen. Have fun, guys.